0: Have you ever wondered what goes on behind the scenes of the restaurant industry? I'm Katie Ozuna, the host of Copper and Heat, the James Beard award-winning podcast that explores the unspoken rules and traditions of restaurants. Each episode is a narrative deep dive, asking questions like, why do we tip? Why are restaurants so financially precarious? Why are tasting menus a thing? And what do restaurant awards really say about what's good? Hear from chefs, restaurant workers, food anthropologists, and more. Find Copper and Heat wherever you listen.
1: The global north's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the global south. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed, Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. A taste of place, of time, of space, of memory. How do we find a way to belong, a way to look at the past and to build a future? My name is Dr. Anna Sulan Musing, and I hope to answer those questions as we explore taste and memory throughout this series. Welcome. To Taste of Place, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. On the second episode, How Pepper Changed the World, we dive into how pepper made its way into Europe via medieval trade systems and how that in turn changed the way trade was structured and became key to the growth of capitalism. I speak with Professor Dr. Paul Friedman, historian and archivist for the Company of Grocers, Dr. Helen Clifford, and historian and author Lizzie Collingham to help tell this story. When talking about origins, there is no one set story or beginning. But... When the merchant James Lancaster, commander of the East India Company's first fleet, arrived back in England in 1603 with ships laden entirely of pepper, that marked a turning point, a place where the Western world shifted and there was no going back. It shifted to a space of desire, a thirst for consumption of product and profit. The unknown became known and ownable. In the words of the late novelist and activist Ambalavana Sivanadan when discussing post-colonial migration, We are here because you were there. James Lancaster's ship and its cargo of pepper is a part of my story, how I came to be today as a Niban from Sarawak, raised in New Zealand, and now a British citizen working in London. It is a story of trade, of colonialism and of migration. My interest in pepper began as mere curiosity. I started seeing Sarawak pepper being sold in fancy stores or displayed on expensive restaurant menus in the UK and Europe. But in my experience, few people even knew where Sarawak was. So why was this pepper so popular now? It seemed to me that Zerawak Pepper was being portrayed as exotic and exciting. However, at the same time, because of the fervour surrounding the upcoming Brexit referendum, I was seeing all around me an idea of nationhood being created in Britain that was growing more and more violently singular, marginalising anything or anyone that represented an other. One of the key points of this rhetoric is a desire to return to the glory days of the British Empire when, quote-unquote, things were better. Pepper perfectly shows how a nostalgia for an imagined past, the effects of colonialism, and the exoticization of non-Western cultures all connect. As someone who is mixed race, with parents from post-colonial spaces, colonialism is extremely relevant to my personal history. Pepper which originates from and has grown primarily in post-colonial places, guides me on the path I walk today. This episode explores the history of the pepper trade, so we can understand the power relationships in this complex system and where our nostalgia truly comes from. Pepper is the most traded spice in the world. It was one of the first spices that was traded into Europe and became the blueprint with which colonialism was built. Colonialism was a project in trade and capitalism, spearheaded by the English East India Company. To quote historian and author Alex von Tunzelman from her book Indian Summer, The Secret History of the End of Empire. In the beginning, there were two nations. One was a vast and mighty, magnificent empire, brilliantly organised. The other was an undeveloped, semi-feudal realm riven by religious factualism and barely able to feed its illiterate masses. The first nation was India. The second was England. She is referring to the year 1577. Alex goes on to explain that in 1600, Queen Elizabeth granted charter to the governor and company of merchants of London trading into the East India, otherwise known as the East India Company. This was for 15 years, but her heir, James I, cancelled the expiry date with only one rule. The company had to turn a profit to keep its charter. And, in Alex's words, thus a beast was created whose only objective was money. And she explains this was pure capitalism unleashed for the first time in history. It was a private empire of money, unburdened by conscience rampaging across Asia unfettered into the 1850s. From the late 1600s, the English East India Company had its own army, could wage wars, minted its own coin, and brutally acquired new territories to meet its object of profit. It is through capitalist venture that our modern world is built. And to create one that is based on equality, we need to reimagine a world away from this colonial structure to decolonize. Looking at Pepper is my way into some of these stories and understanding the past. I speak with Dr. Paul Friedman to find out about Pepper in medieval England and the lead up to colonial times.
2: I'm Paul Friedman. I am a professor of history at Yale University in the United States. My field is medieval history. I'm also interested in the history of food and cuisine. I've written on both subjects, including a book on spices in the Middle Ages and why the demand for spices was so great. For a long time, these were marks of luxury. But in fact, by the late Middle Ages, so the 15th century, pepper is common enough so that some lords demand small quantities of pepper as part of the rent that their peasants are paying. And pepper in literary works becomes a mark of peasant tastes. So then other spices become prestigious and pepper becomes a little bit what it is in modern times.
1: It is important to note that there were already vast and complex trade routes throughout the world, a trade that Europe was already a part of, if not directly importing themselves. The Roman were known to love pepper. Both Paul Friedman and Lizzie Collingham spoke to me about how documented pepper was during Roman antiquity. Helen Clifford makes note in her book on the history of the grocer's company that the taste of pepper in Europe was in part disseminated by the Crusaders, who returned home with a liking for its hot and dry flavor. Pepper was a known flavor in Europe for a long time. The Story of Spices has always been one of empire. The Mongol Empire, the largest the world has ever seen, was built through brutal campaigns of subjugation, but also resulted in a vast territory that became safe and stable for travelers and traders, which led to the spread of spices to places far from their homelands.
2: Up until Marco Polo, so about 1300, and his reports about India, it was widely believed While pepper came from India, they weren't really sure where India was. It was thought that pepper grew in great profusion in India in forests, on trees, but that these forests were infested with poisonous snakes. And that the only way to get the pepper was to burn the trees, killing or driving out the snakes. And by the way, that's why peppercorns look like they've been toasted or burned, that wrinkled, hard surface, is because they've been through this fire.
1: Poisonous snakes and burning trees. It turns out that none of this, of course, was actually how pepper was harvested. Paul tells us the reason for these tales.
2: That also was called sometimes a merchant's fable. It explains why the price is so high. You've got to plant the trees all over again and then wait another how many years before they produce pepper.
1: What is clear in Paul's telling of spice in the medieval period and in the lead-up to colonialism is that there is some fairly detailed understanding of where spices come from and the idea of the lands beyond Europe. Therefore, any notions of discovery of lands in Asia that often gets perpetuated when discussing the European explorers and the start of Western empires, is inaccurate even in their times. Maps as early as 1492 help understand the trade route. A map by German, Marsen B. showed that in the late 1400s there was at least 12 stages that spice travelled to get west, which is primarily where the costs of spices come in, aided by stories to help them sell at high prices.
2: So, those middlemen include Italians, particularly the Venetians and the Genoese, Islamic intermediaries, people in India, and those who took the spices either up the Persian Gulf or the Red Sea. So, they'd be traded. The Venetians and the Genoese would pick them up from places like Beirut, Damascus, Alexandria.
1: These maps show that there was a huge desire to understand, find, and acquire these spices. There was a sense of abundance in these distant places, which drove countries like Portugal, Spain and England to find these lands themselves. In 1498, the Portuguese succeeded in finding a sea route to Kerala, circumventing existing trade routes and middlemen and breaking the Venetian monopoly on the spice trade. The race was on for the other European nations and in the coming centuries, numerous wars and battles would be fought both diplomatically and militarily, for control over these roots.
2: You couldn't grow nutmeg in Europe or pepper. Their exotic nature is very much part of their appeal, their expense, the fact they come from lands that were little known but greatly admired and about which a lot of legends were elaborated. That doesn't mean that the actual taste wasn't important. On the contrary, they were fascinated by flavors, aromas, and had a kind of notion of wellness, of spices as beneficial. The medical teachings of the time emphasized balance of what were called the humors. These are bodily fluids, blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm. And these correspond to levels of heat and moisture. So pepper was hot and dry in the fourth degree. That's as many degrees as there are. So it's very hot and very dry. And therefore, according to medical recipes, was important to balance out things that were very cold and very wet. So for example, lamprey, which is a kind of eel-like creature, very highly prized in the Middle Ages, but dangerous because of its cold and moist nature.
1: So, listeners, if you'd like to see what a lamprey looks like, and I'm not sure I would recommend it, to be honest, to Google, the spelling is L-A-M-P-R-E-Y. It's a rather unusual fish.
2: So, a heart... Pepper sauce, hot in the humoral sense. Black pepper sauce was ideal with lamprey. Beginning in the 17th century, spices start to disappear from European cuisine. Either they're relegated to desserts like cinnamon or cloves. So by this time, the attractive foreign products are things that the Middle Ages didn't know. Things like tea or chocolate or coffee, which all have the advantage of having caffeine, or tobacco, which has the advantage of having nicotine.
1: Paul's insight into the way pepper and other goods were understood and consumed during this time made me want to know about the logistics and power behind these ingredients' trade. Here, I speak with Dr. Helen Clifford, the historian of the guild that was responsible for pepper and other spices during the medieval Tudor and Jacobean period. I'm
3: Dr. Helen Clifford, and I'm the company archivist for the Worshipful Company of Grocers. My task, really, is to write the company histories. I'm now on volume two. It's an extraordinary place to work, deep in the city, with all the
1: skyscrapers, but then we've got a hall that dates back to 1427. 1180 was when a guild of pepperers is first recorded, And we know this because there is documentation that they received a fine for operating without a royal license. This fine was happily paid, meaning that the Guild existed, even if illegally. This fraternity was named Pepperers because, as Helen points out in her second book about the history of the company, it was the chief staple of their trade. Enough pepper was flowing into England in the 1100s for a group to gather to protect their trade. In 1345, the Fraternity of Peppers was officially founded.
3: Guilds probably originated in Anglo-Saxon times. It's about gathering together people with whom you have a relationship. It might be a trading relationship. Many of them started as religious groups. They're really underpinned by this idea of fellowship, of, of coming together. If they're a trade fraternity, craft fraternity... Then they're going to protect that craft so that they flourish, that they outdo competition. So it's important to increase your size and your power over time.
1: By the late 1300s, they were known as the Company of Grocers. The microhistory of Indian kitchen design and the undying Indian fetish for mangoes are just some of the wily, diverse topics on Western Radio Collective's Bad Table Manners podcast. I'm your host, Meha Varma, a Delhi-based cultural anthropologist. This is just the beginning of a deep dive into South Asia's rich and diverse food culture. The first season starts in India with my guests who include a marine conservation scientist, a food historian, and a bakery owner. As knowledge, compassion, and humor merge into one, I promise you won't go away hungry.
3: About the early 1300s, this word grocer comes in. You see it in medieval manuscripts and sort of wills and accounts, things like that. But clearly this word has a greater resonance for them. And the word grocer comes from gross. So it's about dealing in bulk. They're seeing themselves as dealers in bulk commodity, as wholesalers. And unfortunately there's a gap in the accounts of the company, so we can't actually pinpoint the exact date they decide to become grocers. But certainly by 1375, And I think perhaps it's indicating a a
1: broadening out of their horizons. In 1394, the Guild petitioned the King, saying they needed someone to check the goods to ensure they hadn't been doctored. The King agreed. The grocers became responsible for the goods that came into the country. They had the privilege of weighing the goods. Everyone had to have their goods weighted. And in doing so, they paid a fee, which the grocers from the time they were known as the pepperers, got a percentage off, and the crown received the rest. On the company's crest is a camel, with a sack of pepper on its back, as camels were an essential part of the trade route that England was part of up until the end of their medieval times. Helen explained to me that although their focus was in England, their business was trade, and so they had interests much further afield. As global trade grew, along with the population of England, the grocer's members also changed, including mathematical instrument makers, often those who moved to England from the Netherlands, whose inventions were used in navigation and map making, all important for those sailing to newly acquired lands and trading posts. It's
3: very noticeable that grocers are key members of the earliest companies in the 1550s, the Muscovy Company, the Levant Company. They are the movers and shakers, and therefore it's no surprise that grocers are very, very
1: key in the East India Company. After the Great Fire in London in 1666, when the company lost all of its property and became bankrupt, there is a shift where the grocers try to divorce themselves from trade and go back to the idea of fraternal fellowship to rebuild their reputation, particularly through charitable work.
3: Since starting work at the grocers over 10 years ago, I've got a much more complex understanding of this tiny, tiny little seed that's come from so far. It's a very
1: complex little thing. Mm. a peppercorn. <laughs> Demand for pepper and other spices, and the desire to acquire them at a lower cost, led the British to establish their own trade routes via the East India Company. A historic milestone that, for better or for worse, would change the world. To learn more, I speak with author and historian Lizzie Collingham. I'm
0: Lizzie Collingham. I'm an independent historian and I write mainly about food and history. I've written about curry. I've written about food and war, a very grim book about food as a weapon of war and food as a driving force for empire. And my latest book was about biscuits. A standard... Curry that I make for my family all the time is a chicken and potato curry. I'm fed up with eating it, but they still want it. You put 10 whole black peppercorns in with green cardamoms and cinnamon and curry leaves or bay leaves. So that's what I think of when I think of black pepper.
1: Everyone I interviewed for this season, I asked, what does pepper mean to them? And for those that predominantly grew up in the global north, when did they learn that pepper was from somewhere else? was not grown in the global north. Most people, including those of diaspora, of where pepper is grown, hadn't thought about it much until they were adults, and interests in history or food got them thinking. It was an ingredient so ubiquitous to the US and UK tables that it sparked little curiosity.
0: Like many British people, I think for most of my life, pepper didn't really mean very much at all. When I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, it was just this thing that you had on the table. It was always pre-ground, so it was never actually that nice. I don't like pre-ground. I didn't really pay any attention to it. But once I became interested in India, once I became interested in Indian food,
1: it started to play a large role in my life. Why I love Lizzie's books is that through storytelling, being engaged in a wide cultural look at a period of time, the small things like Pepper come into focus. Her book, Curry, A Tale of Cooks and Conquerors, is one I lend out so frequently when friends are curious about how food travels. Her book, The Hungry Empire, How Britain's Quest for Food Shaped the Modern World, is particularly relevant to the questions I had for this series, and particularly this episode.
0: By the early 17th century, people are beginning to view what happens in your digestive system, particularly in the stomach, as a process of fermentation. So they start to favour fermenting foods, But at the same time, chemistry is sort of coming up and a French chemist experiments with pepper and he says, oh, there are in pepper something he calls aronic salts. And these aronic salts are seen as being useful in promoting fermentation. And so pepper stays in the savoury dishes as it's good to put on your dishes to help fermentation in the digestive system. And so salt and pepper become the pair of spices that you put on the table, that you put in your food. Most of the French Nouvelle Cuisine 17th century dishes have salt and pepper in them. Charles II, when he's reinstated in 1660 to the throne, he's been in exile in France. He brings that way of cooking with him into Britain.
1: What Pepper does is bring England into the Indian Ocean, into a complex and vibrant trade system, As Lizzie says in her book, The Hungry Empire, the Europeans who sailed to the Indies muscled their way into the liveliest commercial zone in the early modern world. It was an incredibly diverse system and complex trading chains stretched across many ports. And therefore, there were more things than spices to be interested in.
0: So the Romans brought silver to buy pepper and The Portuguese and the Dutch and the British do that too. Silver's what they can sell in return for pepper. But they soon discover that they can get pepper for it in India. But if they sail on further east to the Spice Islands in the Moluccas and where Indonesia is now, people aren't so interested in silver. What they want is the Indian textiles. And you take those textiles then to your spice islands, you swap the textiles for spices and then you sail back home. The British start to realise, oh wow, these are amazing textiles with these beautiful... I mean, if you look at Indian textiles still, these printed fabrics and so on. So they become very fashionable and soon pepper actually becomes a fairly unimportant trading good. And instead, they're focusing on bringing back bales and bales of calicos and so on. And that creates a desire for these things. You get a desire for beauty in terms of lovely, soft calico underwear and so on, and that drives the trading circuits further. So before that, you might go to a fair or the local town to the market to buy your food. And peddlers would come round with sacks with ribbons in for girls hair and stuff like that that you might occasionally buy these things but with the growth of these empire commodities coming in these are new tastes new flavors they're exciting and exotic they reach down into ordinary people and so the consumer revolution is sort of getting going people are able to buy more products and you get these little village shops that set up, maybe in somebody's front room or a little awning on the side of an inn where they sell tea and sugar, a few spices, and you can pop in and out.
1: This expansion of trade led the British, in particular the East India Company with its trade monopolies, to other areas of Asia in pursuit of various goods. To quote Lizzie in her chapter How Pepper Took the British to India, New consumables were arriving in England from the colonies in unprecedented quantities. One of these was tea, and with it, the demand for sugar, used in likeliness to temper the bitterness. The thirst for sugar led to the expansion of sugar plantations, particularly in the Caribbean, which ultimately led to the transport of people to work those plantations. In his book, Sweetness and Power, the place of sugar in modern history, American anthropologist Sidney W. Mintz writes, English people came to view sugar as essential. Supplying them with it became as much a political as an economic obligation. His book explains how riches from these colonial plantations were accumulated, to quote, by the labor of millions of slaves stolen from Africa on millions of acres of the new world stolen from native peoples. Pepper is a plant that launched a thousand ships. It sits in my hand today, black and wrinkled, coarse against my fingers as I tip it into my mortar and pestle. I'm a product of colonialism. I'm a child of the empire, a mother of milk and honey, a father of rubber and gilt money, and other of all places that have been mapped in. My existence began when those ships set sail, when royalty granted trade, My past is woven across bodies of water. It's part of my senses, the texture of my being. It feeds into my belonging, my understanding of home, my longing and desire for places that exist across time. The past sits with me now, alongside the possibility of a future. Pepper became the tool to pave the way for desire for commodities that far surpassed our needs. A tool for greed, of profit that demanded labour beyond any idea of equality and ethics, one that enslaved tens of millions of people, indentured communities, stole land, and took people far from home. The riches that Pepper provided created wars and has our history soaked in blood, in sweat, in tears. These roots across the globe sought out for the privilege of a few are now ingrained in the systems we live in. These pathways become ones that many traverse, people, plants, knowledge. We cannot undo what has been done, but we can see it with fresh eyes and see the worn in lines and try instead to find better ways across the world. We can realize the pain and also give power to those original farmers by honestly investigating the past and by thinking critically about the systems of trade we participate in now. Thank you so much for listening to Episode 2 of Taste of Place. Thank you to my guests today, Dr. Paul Friedman, Dr. Helen Clifford, and Lizzie Collingham. And thank you to Celine Emendola for assisting with recording for this episode. I would recommend listening to Black Material Geographies, especially Episode 8, which looks at cotton, on how textiles became one of the catalysts for British colonialism. This podcast is part of the Whetstone Radio Collective family and explores how to create more sustainable systems through the lens of blackness and textile material culture. I'd like to thank my producer, Catherine Yang, audio editor, Diana Kapulong, researcher, Caroline Merrifield, and intern, Ashley Choi. I'd also like to thank... Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer Celine Glazier, sound engineer Max Kuddlechuk, music director Catherine Yang, managing producer Marvin Yehr, associate producer Quentin LeBeau, production coordinator Shabnam Fadosi, production assistant Maha Saned, and publicist Melissa Horton. Theme music created by Catherine Yang and cover art created by Whetstone art director Alex Bowman. You can learn more about this podcast on whetstoneradio.com, on Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, on TikTok at Whetstone Media, and subscribe to our Spotify and YouTube channel, Whetstone Media, for more podcast content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemedia.com.